Radiotopia. Welcome to the Kitchen Sisters present PRX. We're the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Hi, this is Nikki of the Kitchen Sisters. We want to tell you about a new weekly from PRX called Monumental. Did you know there are 22 monuments depicting mermaids, but only two depicting U.S. Congresswomen? The landscape of public memory is changing, but is the day-to-day changing with it? Monumental will uncover the stories that our monuments are telling about what and who is important, as well as the stories that have been left out. Join host Ashley C. Ford and our team of 12 journalists across the country as they confront the reality of what we publicly commemorate, exploring big questions about the past, present, and future of monuments. Listen on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. The Kitchen Sisters Present is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. It's so much to tell you about it till I don't know what to start telling you. Wherever you want to start. Oh, it was an awful thing you want me to tell you, but it's no tongue can tell it. In 1900, Galveston was the Grand Dam of Texas, a vibrant port city sitting haughtily on a sandbar facing the Gulf. The Great Hurricane arrived on a Saturday, September 8th, almost without warning, reducing the town to a splintered wasteland. Some 6,000 people perished on the island, and at least four to 6,000 on the mainland. In 2000, as part of our Lost and Found Sound series on NPR, producer John Burnett revisited the worst natural disaster in U.S. history. Today, the Kitchen Sisters present this extraordinary and timely story no tongue can tell. The Galveston Storm of 1900. As I grew up in Galveston, people didn't talk about the 1900 storm. Basically, I think uh, Galveston's attitude was it's bad for business. No chamber of commerce wants to talk about the worst tragedy in the history of the United States where 6,000 or 8,000 people died on this little old island. The folks that survived the storm were sort of like people who survived a war. Uh, it It was so terrible, and the impact was so great in their memory that they'd rather not talk about it. It's not good social conversation. But over the years, they did tell their stories of the flood, when they were asked. On Saturday the 8th, Ella, our cook, prepared the Sunday dinner as usual. She cooked a six-pound veal rump roast and made a cake, which was to go with a pitcher of boiled custard that my mother had planned for dessert. Everyone went about their usual tasks until about 11 a.m., when my brother Jacob, 11 years of age, and our cousin, Alan Brooks, age 13, who was spending a month with us, 
came from the beach with a report that the gulf was very rough and the tide very high. About half past three, Jacob and Alan came running, shouting excitedly that the gulf looked like a great gray wall about 50 feet high moving slowly toward the island. Catherine Vetter Pauls was not quite six years old at the dawn of the 20th century. In that year, her home of Galveston was the most important city in Texas. It could claim the biggest port, the most millionaires, the best theaters, the grandest mansions, the first telephones and electric lights, and more saloons than New Orleans. Galveston was a sensuous city where people came to bathe in the warm gulf and have a good time. It was also the most vulnerable, built on a skinny barrier island only five feet above sea level. Yet the city enjoyed a false sense of security. Years before, the local weather bureau official, Isaac M. Klein, had written how it was an absurd delusion that Galveston could be damaged by a killer storm because of the gentle slope of the gulf. On the eve of the huge hurricane, no one was overly concerned. And I seem to recall how I found it sat on our front porch and uh, enjoyed the cool breezes. We had no inkling of a severe storm approaching. Twelve-year-old Hyman Block lived with his parents and four brothers and sisters on Winnie Street. I guess our first realization of something bad was about four o'clock in the afternoon. We noticed some lumber floating by, and the people would then come and seem to seek shelter at the courthouse. We could hear the cows mooing and the dogs barking, the shouting in one thing or another. Well, we knew there was a storm coming, but we had no idea it was bad as it was. The city didn't have a water bureau, a weather bureau that mm-hmm. give us the dope that they got now. Well, then all you knew was that there was a storm out there. Oh, yes, they knew there was a storm then, but they had no airplanes, you know, to walk, yeah. go out there and see what, how bad it was. That was William Mason Bristol, who was 21 when he rode out the storm in his mother's boarding house in the east end of Galveston. In those early days of forecasting, before storms had names, no one knew the intensity of the anonymous tempest sweeping in from the Gulf. And so Galveston's 37,000 residents were never warned to evacuate. On the contrary, people thought it was fun. Families walked to the beach to watch the big breakers, and kids played with driftwood floating down the streets. My name is Isola Ethel Bedford Collins. This voice that you're going to hear on the tape is of my mother's aunt, Mrs. Annie Smizer McCullough. She was about 22 years old in 1900 when the storm came. Isola, it's so much to tell you about it till I don't know what to start to telling you. Wherever you want to start. Oh, it was a awful thing you want me to tell you, but it's no tongue can tell it. When I got to the corner of Ninth and Broadway on the south side, the wind was so strong and those waves was coming so. Well, I don't guess you want to hear all of that. Yes, we do. Go ahead. And 
the water was coming so fast. The wagon is getting so it was floating. The four mules swimming it was pulling. And the men laid flat at his stomach, holding the little children. The 1900 storm was what we now call a Category 4 hurricane. Winds were estimated at 120 miles per hour, and the storm surge reached 15 feet. Men saw six-foot waves coming down Broadway. Galveston Bay behind and the Gulf of Mexico in front became one and swallowed Galveston. Survivors remember the wind as it invaded their homes. It sounded like a thousand little devils shrieking and whistling, wrote one. Louise Bristol Hopkins was seven years old that night. My mother, when she realized that the water was going to come in the house, mm-hmm. that it was coming under the door, under the house, in the house, the first floor, mm-hmm. she went out to where she uh, chopped kindlingwood for the stove, you know, there was no gas, no electricity, right, right. and got an axe, and she chopped holes in the, every floor of every room downstairs, in the hallway, in the kitchen, in the dining room, Mm-hmm. So the water would come up into the house and held the house on the right, foundation. Right, and not floated off the foundation. Yes. Yeah. What survivors describe are the sounds of a city coming apart. The wind turned slate shingles into whirling saw blades. The surf demolished a streetcar track, and the rails became waterborne battering rams against houses. One man reported looking up at a grand piano riding the crest of a wave. The wind was picking up, and uh, in those days, everybody had shutters on the home. The wind was blowing them off. The slate was coming off that house. It sounded like a freight train passing on over the roof of the house. The animals tried to swim to safety, and the frightened, squawking chickens were roosting everywhere they could get above the bottom. People from homes already demolished were beginning to drift into our house, which still stood starkly against the increasing fury of the wind and water. Catherine Vetter Pauls and Wilbur Goodman, who was 12, weathered the storm in their own homes. Many others, such as Annie McCullough, took refuge in the sturdy brick Rosenberg School. It was so crowded, and the people were screaming and howling so hungry, folks. Oh, the wind, those men that was in the school... All they could do is stand against those doors and hold them. In the terrifying darkness, mothers and fathers tried desperately to hold their families together. The waves swept children out of their parents' arms. Others were gashed by flying debris. There were about 24 refugees that we remember that came through the windows there. The late Galveston banker and philanthropist John W. Harris was six years old on September 8, 1900. My sister and I were only two children, and mother had a trunk strap around each one of us and had to hold on to us as long as she could. Of all the individual tragedies throughout that endless night, none was greater than the destruction of St. Mary's Orphanage, where 90 children and 10 Catholic nuns died. The orphanage consisted of two wooden dormitories built fewer than 100 yards from the beach 
in the belief that the ocean breezes would make it safer from yellow fever. Sister Margaret Ann Toomey is General Secretary of the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word, which relocated from Galveston to Houston after the hurricane. She reads here from an account of the storm written by her order this year to commemorate the catastrophe. Recognizing the severity of the storm, the sisters brought all the children into the girls' dormitory because it was the newer and stronger of the two. To calm the children, the sisters had them sing Queen of the Waves, an old French hymn. Traditionally sung during storms by fishermen in France, seeking the protection of Mary, Mother of Jesus, Queen of the Waves. The waters of the Gulf filled the first floor of the dormitory. In an effort to protect the children, the sisters tied the orphans to themselves with clothesline. Each sister tied to herself from six to eight children. It was a valiant yet sacrificial effort. With the winds howling, the sisters and children heard the loud crash of the boys' dormitory as it gave way to the flood waters. Again, they sang the hymn. Eventually, the girls' dormitory was lifted from its foundation by the rising waters and sank. Only three boys were able to escape. About daylight, the storm began to subside the waters to recede. As the light came, a call from outside brought help from the house, and in shocked silence they saw standing stripped stark naked except for a piece of mattress ticking, their neighbor from across the street, Captain Munn. His home, his wife, and her mother were all gone. He had floated all night on a mattress, and so was saved. As friendly, sympathetic hands drew him into shelter, tears rained down his face, and there are no words to describe his desolation. The hurricane destroyed two-thirds of Texas's most advanced city and badly damaged what was left. The neighborhoods closest to the Gulf were simply obliterated. Galveston was unrecognizable. The only way one woman found her ruined house was hearing her pet parrot calling, Pretty Polly, Pretty Polly, from the attic. James Brown, who'd immigrated from England to Texas in 1883, wrote this letter home as soon as he could. Dear sisters and cousins, we are all well and alive, thank God. I would like to describe the awful tornado and flood, but words cannot describe it. Perhaps you have read accounts of it and seen pictures of the wrecks, but if you put them all together and multiply the awfulness of it by ten, you will still have but a faint idea of it all. Human thought cannot grasp it. Your affectionate brother, James Brown. 
John W. Harris and Catherine Vetter Pauls never forgot watching how the storm affected their respective parents. The old Harris homestead where my aunts and my cousins lived was completely destroyed and I lost 11 relatives in the 1900 storm. And I remember the mayor came in next morning and when we were all having breakfast there at, um, at uh, 1404 Tremont and he said to Father, John, your whole family are destroyed. And I remember it's the first time that I ever saw Father with tears in his eyes. And he, we, he had no idea that of the extent of the damage. We hadn't left the house yet. My mother carried in our hand her jewelry in a small chamois bag. And once she stepped on a barrel concealed by the water, it rolled and she went under with it. She grabbed at something to pull herself up. It was the body of a small girl. Her self-control gave way, and she wept hysterically. To read the letters of survivors, it seems miraculous that anyone made it through the night. Ella Seeley belonged to one of Galveston's leading families. Dear Margaret, oh, you can't imagine the awful tales we hear. One man's head was cut right off his body by a piece of flying slate. Telegraph poles were flying in the air like straws, and trees were falling everywhere. Old man Murdoch was washed out to sea in his bathing house, which collapsed. He grabbed a piece of wood and was blown into shore and dashed against a house, climbed in the second window, and that house was carried out in the gulf and smashed to pieces. He grabbed onto a section of roof and again blown to shore. Next morning was found in Mr. debris with both arms broken. Your loving sister, Ella. The day after the storm, one survivor described knots of people frightened out of their wits, crazy men and women crying and weeping at the tops of their voices. Searchers found the nuns and the children of St. Mary's Orphanage still tethered together, and they buried them where they lay. There were corpses everywhere. Louise Bristol Hopkins remembers how the authorities tried sea burial, but they were unsuccessful. She was seven during the storm. She later recounted her experiences for school children. There was no identification or no prayer said or anything else that just were put in the ground. And then there were so many of them, they took them out to sea, and then they washed back in again. So uh, then they had to be burned. It was a, it was a terrible time. It really was. Yeah. I heard the stories of people who had been yeah. women with long hair had been caught in the trees with the hair and cut to pieces with slate had been fired. The authorities declared martial law and began conscripting men to restore order and to shoot the ghouls, they called them, that were robbing jewelry from corpses. Lloyd Failing was deputized to oversee the disposal of bodies. We drove hundreds of Negroes at the bayonet point to assist in the work of burning and loading the dead on barges for sea burial. And on one occasion, by orders of the mayor, we marched to the foot of Tremont Street, taking every able-bodied man white or black met with and forced them at Bayonet Point to assist in the awful work. These poor fellows were only kept up on whiskey, which was given to them by the gobletful. Major Lloyd R.D. Failing. The role of race in the 1900 storm is complicated. Isola Collins, a retired music teacher, has collected stories of how black Galveston weathered the hurricane. She told me of a white woman who refused to be saved by a black man and of how African-Americans were given relief supplies only after whites got theirs. But Mrs. Collins said that was not the whole picture, and she insisted I include this story told by her Aunt Annie. This white man 
was crying and he told my husband, if your house is gone, you bring your family and come on and live in mine with us. And so we stayed there, these white people, just turned their place over to In the decade after the storm, Galveston rebuilt itself in a burst of civic determination. The city constructed a 17-foot seawall and a cement causeway to the mainland. Every surviving structure, from shanties to St. Patrick's Catholic Church, was jacked up and sand pumped underneath it. 500 city blocks were elevated this way. Today, there's almost nothing in Galveston to remind people of the hurricane. They say there are still houses with holes chopped in the floors and buildings with high water marks, but no one can find them. On this centennial, the only concrete thing we have left to remind us of that time are the voices from the great storm. I'm John Burnett on Galveston Island, Texas. I tell you all, thank God I got I'm telling you the truth. And no tongue can tell what that was. No Tongue Can Tell was produced by John Burnett and Davia Nelson as part of the Lost and Found Sound series on NPR, produced by the Kitchen Sisters and Jay Allison. With production help from Sarah Saracen, Bill Deputy, and Jim McKee at Earwax Productions. Thanks to Galveston and Texas History Center of the Rosenberg Library and archivists Casey Green and Sherry Henley Kelly, authors of the book Through a Night of Horrors. You've been listening to the Kitchen Sisters present Stories from the Flip Side of History, produced by the Kitchen Sisters with Nathan Dalton and Brandy Howell. Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art works. The Kitchen Sisters Present is part of Radiotopia from PRX, a curated network of extraordinary cutting-edge podcasts created by independent producers. Radiotopia from PRX is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation, and thanks to AdCirc for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. Thanks for listening. It's an election year, have you noticed? But does it feel like our democracy is running smoothly? Does it feel like our leaders are responsive to our needs? If you don't think so, you're not alone. So the question is, how can we start to fix it? Luckily, there are things we can do right now to get us back on track. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group of shows, hosts, and networks who are banding together to try and make things better. We're partnering with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization working city by city and state by state to pass laws that protect democracy and improve it. We need a system that works for the American people, not just special interests. And you can do your part. Go to represent.us slash podcast. That's represent.us slash podcast to join the movement today. 